0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Artificial intelligence or AI is transforming the workplace and revolutionising industries around the world. From manufacturing to healthcare, finance to entertainment, AI is changing the way we work use it to perform tasks or to support decision making.
0: We have bots that will do the work that's traditionally done by legal secretaries or paralegals. For
2: now, we are most of the time using that for work processes which are kind of repetitive. To
3: help analyze and synthesize some data.
2: Most of the time we're enjoying it.
3: People won't accept and continue to use technology that they don't trust.
2: Think about your identity and the AI system enables someone to be in the same position as you are. How do you feel about that?
1: While AI has undoubtedly improved our efficiency and productivity, it also has a dark side. Oh, this script isn't quite working for me. We tried to get ChatGPT to write that intro, but it didn't feel quite right. Hello, I'm Lisa Leong, and today on This Working Life, how we can best work alongside and trust our new digital co-worker
3: has been used by employees in a number of ways in their work That's Professor Nicole Gillespie. I'm the KPMG Chair in Organisational Trust and a
1: Professor of Management at the University of Queensland. Nicole says AI is also being used at work for organisational tasks. They can use it to perform tasks or to support
3: decision-making, such as using an AI tool to help analyse and synthesise some data. Many people are using ChatGPT now to draft letters or for input into a report, for example. So some examples of this are to monitor security or to automate admin processes. processes, marketing activities, even physical tasks like uh, on an assembly line. And increasingly, we're also seeing AI being used at work to support HR and people management functions. And these obviously impact employees. So this is, for example, using AI to provide feedback to employees, to evaluate, even monitor their performance, and also to support recruitment and selection activities like scanning CVs to help shortlist them.
1: Nicole and a team of researchers recently published a global study that examined public trust and attitudes towards AI use. And she said there was one surprising finding that stood out to her
3: most employees view AI use in managerial decision making as something that they actually prefer. They actually not only accept
1: (laughs) it, but they actually
3: prefer AI involvement to sole human decision making. Yeah, so we found that really surprising. We actually gave people the choice of how much decision making should be based on AI versus human input. And the preferred option was either a 25-75% or 50-50% AI to human ratio. So what this really shows us is that people are really accepting of AI use for making managerial decisions, but they want humans to either retain most of the control or at least equal control. So really clear preference for AI to be used as a decision aid, but a lack of support for fully automated AI decision making at
1: work. And Nicole, what inspired you to do this research?
3: Yeah, so our study was really inspired by recognition that AI is rapidly transforming the way we live, the way that we work. I think ChatGPT has really given us a glimpse of just how powerful and transformative it can be. And we know that there are benefits of AI, that's undeniable, but the risks and challenges of AI are also undeniable. And so we really wanted to understand in more detail how people felt in terms of their trust in AI? What influences that trust? How do they perceive the benefits and risks? And importantly, what are their expectations for the management and governance of AI? So, you know, the risks around AI are raising questions about how trustworthy it is. And we know that if we want to gain the benefits of AI, and there are many of those, you know, for society, for work, people need to be confident that AI is being developed and used in a trustworthy way. So people won't accept and continue to use technology that that they don't trust. So, really, our study was motivated by the desire to play a role in the responsible stewardship of AI into society, into the workplace, and to help understand how AI can be used in a way that people deem is trustworthy. So we feel that it's important to document people's views and expectations. And we hope that by doing that, you know, in our report, we can help organizations to align their own use, their management, the governance of AI with those community expectations. And also the results can be used to inform government policies
1: around the regulation and management of AI as well. So what might happen when we rely on AI for productivity at work?
2: All right. So my name is Franz Strich. I'm a lecturer at Deakin University and I'm working in the field of artificial intelligence and how the implications of implementing artificial intelligence changes people's perceptions, their work roles and how they react to that.
1: And in your research, you've looked at the dark side of all of these developments. Can you share some examples where you found AI at work is creating potential issues?
2: Yeah, pretty much at the heart of what I'm doing. And um, with anything coming out there, any technology, it's actually not only generative AI, but we see that with generative AI a lot because people get scared a lot. If new technology comes and substitutes or augments whatever you are doing, you will probably not feel too happy about that. And we looked in a a 2021 paper, we looked at how the implementation of advanced technologies such as machine learning or AI substitutes employees' work process. So in our case, in the banking industry, the banks decided to implement a technology to substitute Loan consultants work process. So loan consultants decided uh, if a customer is going to get a loan or not. And there was a high amount of money and the customer came and the loan consultant said, well, show me documents. Well, I know you for a couple of years and I think you're reasonable. I checked your data. You should be eligible to get the credit, right? So the bank decided to implement advanced technologies to substitute that process to increase their proficiency because they had default rates. Sometimes the customer didn't pay back the loan. So from one day to the other, The entire process was substituted by the technology.
1: So no loan consultant at all.
2: This is the thing, right? Yeah. The bank can substitute just the loan consultant, but the work process. So you got the loan consultant working with that system. The system is making the decision. The loan consultant is typing in the data, clicking on a button, and then the AI system says, well, that person gets the loan, that person doesn't get the loan. And then the loan consultant has to communicate that decision to the customer.
1: Ah, and doesn't have an input or That's the final say.
2: Exactly. He can't do anything about that. So how would you feel about that, right? And this is what we have been looking at because this is at the core of your identity at, in workplace. You have an occupational or a professional role identity. It's defined on the terms of what are you doing and who you are, who you perceive yourself to be. So... Being that very prolific loan consultant, right? Having that AI system substitute your work processes, who are you then? Think about your identity. We you have been a loan consultant for 10, 15 years. You have been trained really hard. Then you're very proud of what you're doing. And the AI system enabled someone who did not go through all that training to be in the same position as you are. How do you feel about that? When I'm thinking that an AI technology could like instantly make anybody else do the job I've been working very hard for to accomplish. Mm. I'm not going to dislike that person or anything. It's just that I'm going to be a little bit worrisome about what is my value, what is my position in, in the field. So this is uh, what we've been looking at, how they respond to that, how they react to it. And it's a very interesting thing. That will take a lot of companies. Everybody who's thinking... Oh, right now, I'm, I'm a white-collar worker. I would probably not be that affected. i have very specialised and things will change. Things will drastically change and people need to accustom themselves to the idea that other people with the help of the technology can do the job they are doing, close to that at least.
1: So what are the implications of your findings, do you think? What are the further questions that we need to ask?
2: What are we talking about right now is always how... Generative AI systems may, may result in people losing their jobs. That is something we're hearing a lot. I don't personally think that will happen. There will be some jobs being substituted by it. But what we need to worry about or think about is we got that human potential. We got the unique capabilities of humans. We got the technology. We should not be looking so much at how can I substitute the workforce, but we should be looking at which new roles and avenues do these employees have with working with the technology.
1: This idea of co-piloting with AI for our work is something that's being embraced by many businesses. One example of this is the tech-enabled law firm Sprint Law. Alex Solo is the co-founder.
0: So we are in many ways much like any other law firm in that we provide legal services to our clients, we employ lawyers, but the tech enabled part is I guess the point of difference and what we've tried to do is design a law firm a bit differently where we're looking to integrate technology in various ways throughout the legal service delivery process to make our services more efficient, to have a better customer experience and and ultimately make a new version of the law firm that provides more affordable, more scalable and higher quality services to our customers.
1: Bring it to life for us. What part of the legal service delivery are you using your tech and AI for?
0: It's really integrated through like every aspect of the service delivery process. I mean, if you break down sort of what lawyers do, and I should mention, we sort of predominantly work in the commercial law space. So working with sort of small businesses and and medium-sized businesses. But if you break down sort of what lawyers traditionally do, it's, you know, um, engaging clients, uh, offering consultations, providing advice, reviewing agreements, as well as a lot of administration, legal research, opening files, uh, managing trust accounting payments and various other compliance obligations. So we've built different pieces. And utilize different pieces of technology across all of those different aspects. We have bots that will do the work that's traditionally done by sort of legal secretaries or paralegals, you know, in terms of more administrative or research tasks, automating things like issuing engagement letters, trust accounting compliance, collecting background information from clients. We'll use technology as a customer-facing instrument. So instead of having to speak to our lawyers to get some forms of advice or draft-basing documents, we have technology that will enable for at least simple types of documents, clients to generate their own by interacting with bots or other other sorts of technology. And then we're also using technology as a tool for data analysis. So looking at ways that we can leverage our large database and growing database of, of small business legal information, find insights and trends, and use that data to actually improve the quality of our services. So seeing patterns in the types of legal advice that we give and drawing that into the services that we provide clients.
1: Do clients know when they're dealing with a lawyer or a human as opposed to maybe having part of that process automated or being AI enabled?
0: Yeah, look, they do. In in building this sort of different style of law firm we've gone through many iterations of how and when do you slot in technology where does Mm. it fit into the process and what we found is particularly for the sort of medium to high complexity services clients really still want that human experience so a lot of this technology stuff is going on in the background it's not something that if you're a customer of sprint law you may see that we have you know Uh, data analytics technologies or administrative automation Mm. technologies. It's a very human experience, but it's a a much faster, much more um, focused sort of experience because the lawyer is actually doing mostly the consultation with you while the AI is doing all of the administrative and and more um, routine work.
1: How do your lawyers feel about identity and AI? Who are they? Mm -hmm. If the AI is generating some type of information, whether it be documents or potentially even opinion?
0: You know, lawyers by nature are risk averse. All they do all day is tell people about the risks of doing something. And certainly one reason that the legal industry, I think in general has, has not been an industry where innovation has been particularly advanced is because of that pervasive mindset of, of risk aversion. So certainly I think lawyers react to new technologies to AI with some level of fear and some level of inherent skepticism. Certainly when you when you ask something like ChatGPT to, to draft an advice or draft a document and it comes back with something that may be better <laughs> than what you might have written yourself, uh, it's confronting. So I think there is a natural sort of fear response with this stuff. But like with anything, the initial response is often, I'm under threat. And the more considered response is, how can I use this thing and integrate it into what I'm doing to actually improve the way that I work? And we've certainly seen that cycle with the new generative AI stuff. Some sense of fear, are we going to be replaced? Are we going to be disrupted by this new technology? It can be confronting, but then you start using it. You start saving time in the advices you draft, in the documents that you draft, And you start to love it, I think. And that's the cycle that we've seen play out with our lawyers using this technology.
1: So just how many of us
3: trust AI at work? Yeah, so our study shows that only half of employees are willing to trust AI at work. That's Nicole Gillespie again. People in Australia were amongst the least comfortable with using AI at work, along with some of the other Western countries
1: as well. In her global study, Nicole says she and her team found stark differences in people's trust and attitudes towards AI, depending on where they lived. So
3: people in the Western countries like Australia generally have lower trust and less positive attitudes than people in the emerging economies. So that's China, India, Brazil and South Africa. Why Um, do you think that is? Yeah, it's it's a really interesting question. And I mean, part of it is the fact that over 70% of people in those emerging economies report using AI at work and that compares to 40% or less in Western countries. So there's a huge differential in terms of how much people are actually using this at work
1: or have an awareness of how they're using it at work. And she noticed a pattern in the study results, a correlation between an understanding of the technology... And trusting it.
3: When people understand AI and when and how it's used, they also tend to trust it more. But one of the concerning findings was that one in two people across all of the different countries we examined don't feel that they understand AI and when it's being used. And it's even lower in Australia. So we find 60% of Australians report no or low understanding of AI. This lack of understanding is one of several reasons why we find those low levels of trust in AI. But the good news is that most people, we actually find 82% want to know more about AI. So there's a real opportunity here and I think also, you know, a real importance to invest in training and education programs within the workplace to help uplift employees but also even customers understanding of AI so that they understand the benefits, the risks, and importantly they understand how to use AI in a way that's responsible.
1: Nicole found that the majority of people in emerging economies believe the benefits of AI outweigh the risks. They also
3: believe that there's enough safeguards in place. So they believe there's enough laws and regulations to make AI use safe. So, for example, a minority of people in Western countries believe the benefits of AI outweigh the risks in contrast to the very large majority of people in those emerging economies. So, you know, given the emerging nature of those economies and the growing middle class, particularly in China, we believe that encourages a growth mindset in relation to the acceptance of technology because it provides a means to accelerate that economic progress and prosperity. And Nicole, were there any other influencing factors like age and education? Yeah, we actually find that younger generations, as well as the university educated, are more trusting of AI, both at work, they tend to use AI more at work, they're more comfortable with its use, they tend to perceive more benefits with it as well. So we definitely see those generational and educational differences there. And so why is it important for us to trust AI? Yeah, well, I mean, the trust levels really come back to acceptance. So if we're not prepared to trust these technologies, then the sustained adoption just won't be there. We'll stop using them. I think we saw that with social media. You know, there was a lot of concerns about privacy of data and security of data around social media as well as manipulation. Um, And we saw a lot
1: of people, you know, reduce their use of social media. When it comes to decision making then, what is the future in terms of how we might co-pilot with AI to make decisions? So AI is increasingly being used as a decision
3: support tool and that's being used across a range of different areas. Even in areas such as medical diagnosis and treatment, AI is being used there to inform clinicians about the best treatment for people. AI is being used to help people to make decisions around promotions, about um, who to hire for roles. Um, so AI is being used in a, many different ways to support decisions and people are generally pretty comfortable with that. I think in you know going forward, one of the ways that people... People can safeguard themselves, I guess, in some ways, around the disruption from AI, is to you know invest in upskilling, um, invest in understanding AI, and really getting more comfortable with using AI as a co-worker. Now, there's a responsibility that comes with that. You know, when we're relying on AI, you know, for input to our own work, we need to make sure that it is actually accurate. So, going forward, I think one of the important aspects of this is knowing how to evaluate the trustworthiness of AI tools. So, for for example, asking the right questions around, you know, how accurate is the AI? Um, what's the evidence of that? Um, has it been screened to ensure there is no bias? For example, if we're sharing data with an AI system like ChatGPT, you know, how secure is that? Um, how private will it maintain that data? So what assurances are around that? So, you know, the more people are informed about how AI works and how it's being used, the more that they can be aware of the risks, but also the benefits. And so the more they can take advantage, of it, but do
1: that in a way which um, mitigates any of the potential negatives. Just recently, Italy became the first Western country to block chat GPT because of privacy concerns. The parent company says it complies with privacy laws but many experts think the tech is moving too fast. And there's an open letter calling for all AI labs around the world to down tools and pause work on AI systems more powerful than GPT-4 for at least six months.
4: The idea that uh, AI has reached a very concerning or dangerous point where the only solution is to stop it until we can get our act together and answer some legal or ethical questions. Hello, my name is Dr. Thomas Chamuru Premozik. I'm a professor of business psychology at Columbia and UCL and the chief innovation officer at Manpower Group and the author of iHuman AI Automation and the quest to reclaim what makes us unique.
1: Thomas says that he's not in favor of the potential six-month pause on AI research.
4: I think, you know, first of all, we're talking about the research here. And I think there should always be a difference between how fast or how widely the research program can advance. And it should advance as fast as it can, really, especially with the right scientific and ethical regulations or guidance being in place. And then, of course, we need to worry about regulation keeping up with technological applications of that and in many instances people overstate the need for new regulations or laws to be created like even if you look at the extreme cases today for example countries like italy that have banned chat gpt They haven't banned it because of some uncertain, futuristic, Orwellian, you know, dystopian, cyborg-like scare that is out there. They banned it because the site didn't report where it was scraping the information, which means, you know, probably places that it shouldn't. And also because it didn't have a signing option that enables users to report whether they're underage. That's basic stuff. And the surprise is, why haven't other countries followed that?
1: He says that the competition between humans and machines is fought on two fronts, the IQ battle and the EQ battle, and how AI allows us to lean into our human skills at work.
4: Look at ourselves and see whether we are actually using or leveraging all these wonderful human qualities that we have but are often dormant. A really interesting question is not just whether ai might win the iq battle so the battle for thinking and reasoning and solving you know intellectual problems whether it is to play at chess or to write poetry or to write code as we are seeing right now. But I think also the EQ battle, if we think about EQ, that's emotional intelligence and it's about self awareness. It's about empathy. It's about connecting with others, not just intellectually, but on an emotional level as well. And it even includes things like, you know, managing your own impulses and reading into other people's minds. So. My prediction is that humans will, very shortly, have lost the IQ battle against machines. But I also think that that's a bit of a decoy, that's the wrong kind of problem to worry about because what we need to worry about is not whether machines are smarter than humans, but how we can become smarter by using the machines.
1: So what could we be doing about this at work? Thomas has three recommendations.
4: The first is to not dismiss new technologies because I think, you know, if you're not worrying about this or thinking about this, then I really worry about you and your organization because this will happen, you know, it won't be stopped just like other technological innovations. And look, and if we get to a point where Australia or Europe or the US stop it, it probably won't be stopped in China and Singapore and India. So, you know, we have to think about The pros and cons and really be curious enough to interact with these technologies and try to understand them especially as they're trying to understand us better the second one i would say is to get proper advice is to understand that you don't have to become an expert in ai ethics or machine learning or you know neural networks or large language models there is a lot of experts out there so just like you would get expert advice to install your computers and your technology or to design your office. And the last one I think is a big, big imperative, which is to really remember to rehumanize work in an age which will find more and more people, not just dependent on machines, but interacting most of the time with machines. I mean, we still have to worry about ensuring that humans are not just part of the equation but that when they are part of the equation, they actually enjoy the journey and have fun or find some fulfillment at work.
1: Thanks to my guests, to sound engineer Matthew Crawford and to producer Zoe Ferguson, who's relieved the bots won't take her job just yet. This working life is made on the lands of the Bijigal people of the Darug Nation and the Waradri people of the Kulin Nation. I'm Lisa Leong. Thanks for listening to This Working Life. And until next time, work it, baby.
2: You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.